This is The Shift Podcast. Thanks for checking out The Shift Daily Podcast on this episode. Ari Shapiro breaks down the allegations against Toronto Blue Jays superstar Roberto Alomar. What are we willing to forgive when childhood heroes and idols make poor choices? Greg Fish joins the show to let us know that while humans might be done with COVID-19, the virus isn't done with us. And are you okay with beer and a shot? Let's get into some are you okays. Ah, love this guitar strum. Are you okay with beer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I figured this would be unanimous. Yeah. What about a nice cold beer with a shot of Moderna or Pfizer? Not tequila, although I would also oh. accept that. I could get behind that, but what is the science on drinking immediately after your vaccination? (laughs) Because I've I've actually heard uh, someone who got, someone personally I know got AstraZeneca last week referred to the little hangover that she got from the AstraZeneca shot as um, feeling like she had a few too many glasses of champagne at the party last night, but she never went to the party basically, so she got the hangover without the fun part. <laughs> that would suck. And champagne hangovers yeah. are the worst. Yeah. Oh yeah, because it's so sugary. Yeah, so oh. sugary. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know the science behind it. Uh, I'm sure that the health experts would say do not mix vaccines with alcohol, but I, I can't honestly sit here and tell – I don't know the answer. I, that's a great question, and I need to speak with somebody who can answer that. Uh, but check this out. In New Jersey, officials are trying to encourage more people to get the vaccine. So as of this week, they're trying this out. This is New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. We're not going to be afraid to try new things. Uh, Our office and the Department of Health, in partnership with the Brewers Guild of New Jersey, are teaming up up to launch our new Shot and a Beer program to encourage eligible New Jerseyans ages 21 and over to get vaccinated. Any New Jerseyan who gets their first vaccine dose in the month of May and takes their vaccination card to one of the following participating breweries as proof of vaccination will receive a free beer, courtesy of the participating brewery. It's the only reason I regret waiting to get my first shot. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Brilliant. I like that. I think it's an amazing way. Yeah, that's a good idea. I know know a lot of people who want to get the COVID shot, and I know at least 300 more people who want to get the COVID shot and a beer. (laughs) Like, It's great. I, I love it. You know, and, and here's the thing. I think there's a lot of younger people probably and, and older people too that still have that vaccine hesitancy. And we know it's been an issue in the United States. So trying to encourage it, partnering up with, uh, I guess, private companies like breweries and, and creating this incentive program, it's a great way to just sort of calm some of those frustrations and, and just create a little bit of a, I guess, what do you call it? Like a when you when you dangle the carrot in front of the horse, right? You're you're just saying mm-hmm. like, "Hey, it's here. Come get your free beer, and we're just gonna stick you in the arm first, real quick, nice and easy." Oh, so I guess it, if if that's what they're doing, then maybe beer with your vaccine is actually okay, right? Like I'm yeah. assuming you get to have it like immediately after, right? Well, you just gotta go as as fast as you can. It's kind of like you know you know building off that analogy, it's like going to a your friend's birthday party and getting a really awesome goodie bag at the end. Oh, of goodie laser bags. tag and pizza. God, you know what? Next birthday Ryan, it's party, been, I'm doing yeah. goodie bags. Yes, Why please do. It's been, it's been years. Yeah. It's been years since I've ever even heard the term goodie bags. Mm-hmm. My God, that used to be so great. Like the yeah. goodie. Oh my! Thank you for that. Um, th- you know what? That was the energy I needed to get through the rest of this show. Uh, goodie <laughs> bags. Let's do it. Let's do it. Are you okay? I think we're all okay with goodie bags. Are you okay? With video games. I just spent an absorbent amount of money on a chair to play video <laughs> games in. So, yes, I I, I would say I am. 
I think you are. Yes, yeah. you are. And your back will soon be very comfortable as you play those video games. I hope Brendan? So. Yeah, I'm okay with video games. I knew Ryan was more okay than me. That's why I let him have the space to answer that more emphatically. Like, I'm okay with them. I enjoy right. sitting down, but I'm, it's not uh, It's not something I you know, dominate my time with. But if some people say, Brendan Kellen, what is your what is your favorite video game of all time? Favorite video game of all time? Um, okay, mine's weird. I like the I'm going way back when I used to love video games. Mario two. I like the weird Mario. The one that oh, doesn't that... it exists in like a different world than all the other ones. <laughs> one? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I like that oh, one. The Lost Levels. That, yeah. That's a weird yeah. game. And then it's like all a dream and all the yeah. characters are super weird. It makes yeah, no sense. Doesn't fit in with the rest of it. I love it. That that is a dark horse pick. So thank you for that. Uh, are you okay with video games? Look, a professional baseball player got a little too invested in his video game. Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin announced that 23 year old starting pitcher Jesus Lazardo would be absent from the MLB lineup. Why? Well, this is why. So before the game, he was playing a video game and accidentally bumped his hand on the desk as he was playing the game. He came in, was a little bit sore, training staff checked him out, we threw him in the cage before he went out there, watched him warmed up, he was comfortable pitching, training staff was comfortable with him pitching. After the game, we got an x-ray and there was a hairline in the pinky finger. He broke his finger. That, that is not an accident. Let's be honest. Let's call yeah. it what it is. This guy was rage quitting and slammed 100%. his fist down on the table and uh, unfortunately broke his pinky finger that way. I wonder if he was playing like MLB the show. Like, do you think, do you think, <laughs> oh, that's actually an interesting question. Do you think NHL players play NHL, the video game, or, you know, MLB yeah. play MLB? Or do you, 100%. Like, yeah. You think so? 100%. Probably. Like, I, I I have seen tournaments now on Twitch where uh, NHL players play NHL, like the newest edition of NHL, and somebody wins the tournament, I guess, and then they donate money to charity. Mm-hmm. But players are so excited to see, like, what's my rating? What's my overall rating? And oh, you I always want to be yeah. high, right? One one time I, I did commentating for an esports tournament, and Matt Stajan, uh it was a Flames one, and Matt Stajan played against some former Flames player, played against some of the player, uh, the you know kids in the tournament, and you know he did pretty okay. But it was very funny watching Matt see video game version of Matt, <laughs> even though he wasn't like on the roster anymore. It was an old roster, but it, it's 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 an interesting point. But anyway, breaking your finger right before a game, yeah. Yeah. In baseball, too? Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. See, like, there are certain sports where you could get away with a broken pinky. I mean, maybe hockey, depending on which position. Not a goalie. Yep. Uh, uh, maybe football, again, depending on the position. Mm. Not a receiver. Not a quarterback. But if you were, let's say, like an offensive lineman, do you need your pinky? You just need your hand. I don't know if you need your pinky. That being said, I've never once played a single snap on offensive line, so don't quote me on that. But interesting that even pro athletes get, uh, as the kids would say it, uh, rage, the nerd rage or the rage quit, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. No game check for that dude because of a video game. Are you okay? I think we have time for one more here real quickly. Are you okay with octopus? Like the animal, yeah, the crustacean. Isn't it crustacean? Yeah. Oh, that's I believe really it is a crustacean. Good. No, it's an arthropod, isn't it? I, I'm not. That, a it, it actually might be. Yeah. I'm not a marine talking I'm guy. Um, You're not a marine. US marine? No, not that either. Um, uh, no, they're actually kind of terrifying. Mollusks. 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 Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna yes. say no. I'm not okay. They're terrifying, to be honest. Like, have you ever seen yeah. one? Let. Yeah, yeah. No, they're. They're, they're creepy fascinating. looking. Yeah. Hmm. I like them right, because well, of how smart they are and neat they are. You don't have yes. to do the clip, John, because it's kind of like a funny little side thing. But if we don't have time, just get to the story because the story itself okay. is so crazy. All right. Uh, have you ever seen a giant squid statue? So critics say something fishy is happening in the Japanese port of Noto, where local officials reportedly splashed out half a million dollars in COVID-19 relief funds to buy a massive squid sculpture. 
Uh, Chris Gilbert, I'm sure, could give us the lowdown on that. Uh, video shows there are now plenty of suckers and tentacles in Noto, where the pricey 13-meter-long sculpture now stands guard at the community's waterfront. The pink and white sculpture looks like the elusive giant squid of the ocean's darkest, darkest depths, but it's actually a larger-than-life replica of the smaller Japanese flying squid, according to the town. Flying squid are commonly found in the waters around Noto and are a famous delicacy in the community. That'd be akin to like going to a certain place in Idaho and just realizing you have a giant potato statue just because it's Idaho where great potatoes grow. Um, Not exactly the most conventional way to spend uh, a lot of money like that. uh, But hey, if it means so much to the town, I guess it, it can be a mascot. I'm thinking of Dunville, Ontario with Muddy the Mudcat. Oh, it's yeah. A real, look it up. There is a giant statue of a catfish in Dunville. And because of that statue, Dunville is like my favorite place in Canada. Really? You like Dunville? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I like Dunville <laughs> for, you know, I, mm. yeah, there's a really good breakfast place there. But Dunville is Dunville because of Muddy the Mudcat. Mm-hmm. This is the Shift Podcast. What are we willing to forgive when childhood heroes and idols make bad choices? Do we ever learn our lesson and just accept that they're human beings? Or is there something inherently wrong with how we view professional athletes, for example? For more on this particular conversation, we're joined by an old friend, Ari Shapiro, host of the Jay's Journal podcast. You can find that online at arishapiro.ca. Ari, appreciate you giving us some time here in the middle of a work week, no less. The middle of the week, pandemic time, John. Let's face it, last time you and I spoke, it was pre-pandemic. Life was simple and pure, and all the stuff about the Blue Jays usually involved their play on field. So it was very elegant times. I miss those. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, you, you, you said it. Uh, it seems like it was a lifetime ago, but here we are in the beginning of May 2021, and I would like honestly, I, I would love to talk to you about the play of Kevin Biggio or Vlad Guerrero and just talk about the promise that's here for the Blue Jays and a lot of great reasons to be optimistic about all this. But the more pressing story and situation surrounding the franchise has to do with somebody that helped them win back to back titles in the 90s. Somebody that is obviously uh, in the public spotlight for all the wrong reasons, and that is the one and only Roberto Alomar. So. Give us the latest and what we know regarding some of these sexual misconduct allegations levied against him. You know, I thought to myself that uh, every time this kind of circumstance happens where you have a, a hero, you know that expression, John, you should never meet your heroes. That's right, yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting thing. My uh, good friend at Sportsnet, Shai Davidi, whom I actually spoke with earlier in the day, he says, don't uh, don't confuse the art with the artist. You have to make sure that you look at, at the facts. And the facts in this case are there are a lot we don't know. Other than what the mainstream media has been churning out over the last couple of days, uh, as tastefully as it possibly can. And of course, I'm saying that with tongue fully in cheek. It's not that tasteful laws. It's a lot of conjecture and rumor and speculation. This was involving something that happened in 2014. So let's contextualize this. Mm-hmm. He, he did something in, in 2014, seven years ago, that led to Major League Baseball and the Blue Jays both investigating him. So right away, you've got the concern of, well, what could he have done that got everyone so so involved? And here we are in 2021, which, which is what seems like a bolt out of the blue has been shot at, at fans of the Blue Jays and being told that your hero is in fact a a morally reprehensible human being. He's morally reprehensible because we are banishing him from baseball. And that's exactly what's happened. This is a banishment. This is a public banishment because somebody violated the rules. And, And that really at the heart of it is what it's all about. Now we could fill in the blanks and go into details of what it could be. And how do we normally do that, John, when we look at a person's past, right? right. I mean, all you have to do is, is go on Google, Wikipedia, and start researching Roberto Alomar, and you can come to your own conclusions. But the fact is, this was a player that meant so much to this franchise and to a generation of people that it's, uh, it's proving to be very difficult for some people to swallow this one. This is, this is a tough one for so many reasons because uh, we tend to hero worship to such a degree that the thought of erasing the presence or memory of the player in the manner that the Blue Jays are planning to do and have already done, I mean, look, his name has gone from the level of excellence. 
he uh, he he's had any likeness removed in terms of his association or affiliation with the Blue Jays or Major League Baseball. And and let's be clear here for your listeners: Roberto Alomar worked really hard in the last ten to fifteen years of his life professionally to show that he is both an altruist, a philanthropist. He got involved with Jays Care. He sits on a subcommittee for Cooperstown. He was appointed appointed John by Rob Manfred himself to be a crusader for Puerto Rican baseball. So you've got this emissary, this ambassador of the highest order, one day being exalted for all the intangibles and great things he's done, being lauded for the fact that he was a, what, 12-star, 12-time uh, all-star and 10-time uh, gold glove winner. In each of his five years with the Blue Jays, he did exactly what you'd hoped he could do. And he did it over and over and over again and won them two World Series championships. But the fact remains that all that glitters, and I alluded to it in an article that I wrote from, from my site directly, I alluded to the fact that we knew that all that glitters wasn't golden, mm -hmm. right? We knew that, that the spinning incident had revealed that he's human. He is not some perfect human being. He's, he's a fallible, um, uh, vulnerable human being like we all are in that we make choices and we're responsible for them. So somehow, somewhere, somehow along the way, Roberto Alomar did something that, uh, that the people around him felt he should be punished this extensively and this collectively. I mean, some people argue, well, what's the problem? The, shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? We don't know the details. We just know that um, an employee had another employee break the, the law, break the law in the treatment of the employee, not just professionally, but personally. And the fact that it spilled over into something that could have led to a lawsuit or some kind of criminal or civil action, again, we're just speculating, tells you that it must have been very, very bad for them to launch all of these investigations and come to this conclusion. So this is, this is really for people who know him, who are associated with him, for fans of his, for, for Blue Jays faithful that have grown up of my generation, you know, being a long in the tooth Gen Xer like I am. Mm -hmm. Roberto Alomar was Mr. Blue Jay. He was the, the alpha and the omega that changed their fortunes. But the fact remains that he was also a very, uh, a very bad human being to find himself apparently in the situation, and now he's suffering the consequences. Now, anyone in Canada that's um, alleged or charged with a crime, look, they're innocent until proven guilty as per the courts, but we know in the world that we live in, Ari, the court of public opinion acts a lot faster, and the evidence doesn't necessarily even have to be present in order for the public to maybe stand firmly on one side or the other. Um, you know, whether or not our listeners choose to believe one way or another, that's up to them. I'm never going to tell them how they should think or what they should feel. But based on the social media reaction from a lot of people, it seems like there's that immediate knee-jerk reaction like you're talking about, about wanting to distance themselves as much as they can with somebody like Roberto Alomar, which is not easy for Blue Jays diehards to do. But we live in a world now where you have to be so careful with some of the allegiances that you choose to make and what you choose to keep. With that said... Do you think it speaks more about the culture that we have created where we do tend to put um, celebrities, athletes, our childhood heroes on pedestals, and then we ignore the fact that these are just human beings like you say. They bleed the same blood. They eat the same food. They breathe the same air. So why are they not allowed to make some of the same mistakes? Now, obviously, I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of what he's been alleged to do. But the whole point is we can't ignore the fact that they're human beings and therefore capable of making some really poor decisions. Well, his response to this, I thought, was quite intriguing because it revealed very much what you just alluded to, his sensitivity to the cultural reality we're in because his comments along the lines were paraphrasing, I'm disappointed, this is unfortunate, but I understand given our cultural reality. Like there was some kind of illusion I recall reading yesterday that he's very much aware that he's in a, he's in a very, uh, he's in a new reality. But at the end of the day, I, I, I urge your, your listeners, I beseech them, if you will, to appreciate that it is completely reasonable to, uh, to find yourself questioning whether or not he was more a victim of the era he's in than if he actually may have done something seriously wrong. But, but don't do that because, again, John, I give credence to Major League Baseball and the Blue Jays for really exhausting whatever efforts they needed to do to come to this conclusion. Yeah. 
And that's why as much as I'd like to, to sit here and entertain theories, I, I can't see Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins and Rogers wanting to have to pull this trigger. This is not something they wanted to do. This is something they obviously were forced to do because of the severity of the situation. I think, yeah, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Having, having had conversations with somebody like Ross Atkins in the past, he's a, you know, obviously a very intelligent guy and he, I think understands that the franchise has beloved characters like Roberto Alomar. And any time that your organization has to make a decision like this to just, you know, sever somebody like that, uh, it tells you enough about the severity of what's going on and the details that we as the public just don't know about and probably will never know about. Nor should we be privy to them. Good point. And I, and, and I, I questioned that at first. I thought to myself, we really need to know as much as we, we could possibly hope to know because we being those who are either um, followers of the Blue Jays or admire the team, admire baseball, admire the player, you want there to be as much transparency because then you'll destroy any notions that there's some kind of cover-up or conspiracy. But again, we're talking about Roberto Alomar. We're talking about, as I listed off the top, all the great things he's done with baseball. For them to reach this point, it must have been one of those untenable, no-win situations where... Yeah, they could have defended him. They could have just given him the benefit of the doubt. But then what does that say about the movement in the first place to become more sensitive to the fact that this was the kind of stuff that was hounding baseball and still does to this day? It's not like I'm talking to you uh, right now in real time, John, and like baseball's rehabilitated. No, we still have, what was that, the Mickey Calloway incident. We have all these other, Roberto Asuna still in the news somehow. Mm -hmm. It, It never goes away. There's this specter of really bad behavior, uh, really, truly reprehensible moral decisions or lack of morality that's hounding the game. That's one of the reasons I wrote my article about it. I it, Granted, it was more of a rant-filled uh, collection of, you know, spasmic thoughts because I was reeling from the reali- from the, having the realization that another hero just bit the dust. But the fact is, if you really want to be a hero, you lead by example. You, you show children what it means always to be uh, a model citizen, especially if you're enshrined in Cooperstown. I think it's absurd now that he's still in Cooperstown and yet we're pretending, you know, walking around eggshells, he doesn't exist at all. It's going to create a lot of dilemmas, I think, for, for future generations when it comes to understanding what's more important, the moral fiber, the moral character of your leaders and heroes are the ones who simply win the championships and then feel they can be you know, petulant man-children for the rest of their lives. I mean, spitting on, spitting on an umpire's face, John, that's not something that happens regularly in baseball. Right. The fact that it happened to him, he got lucky. He got a five-game suspension, spitting in the face of an umpire who just lost his son to a terrible immunodeficiency disease out there, brought it up in the course of arguing balls and strikes, and was really unrepentant for a while. Mm. And even though there have been some documents about how, you know, documentation of how they they buried the hatchet and Hirschberg forgave him, I don't think he ever truly forgave him because I wouldn't forgive him no. if I were an umpire. No. I mean, that's that's um, pretty tough to tough to do i would imagine you know it's it, and you know it's the reason he didn't make it into the hall of fame the first time around he missed it with the closest narrow margin that a player ever has in his first year of eligibility something like 73.7 percent the next year he was in slam dunk at 90 percent. that was the writers collectively punishing him hmm. and we know they do that they've done that to other blue jays remember when they punished carlos delgado right mr carlos delgado a player who in my opinion should have gone at least maybe 40 50 percent uh, consideration got like three and a half in his first year of eligibility and disappeared. Why? Because he wouldn't stand up during the American anthem in protesting the way we now know Puerto Rico is treated. And this is what's sad being Puerto Rican too, man. Oh man, John, this is just a terrible, terrible development with just a conflux of variables that makes it really already difficult for people struggling through the pandemic. And now just another reason to despair maybe a little bit. Yeah. I I think I understand. It's uh... It's it's interesting to see, though, that when you bring up the point about the, the future generations, the younger generations, and what is more important? Is it the statistical accomplishments, the career accomplishments, or just the moral fiber of these individuals on a case-to-case basis? But with that in mind, how encouraged are you, or maybe you aren't, by the future generation of players and athletes that are also coming up? Because they are now maybe, hopefully, 
ultra aware that they're living in a in a time in a society where a lot of those things that maybe in the 60s 70s 80s who knows decades beyond there were things that you could say or do that wouldn't really raise an eyebrow but now you do it today and you immediately know it's wrong and it's out of place it's out of time how encouraged are you by the younger players stepping up to maybe avoid situations like this? Or am I the one falling into that pit trap again and placing too much hope and expectation on athletes to be superior human beings, even though all they have is just superior sports talent? Baseball has always struggled with the upcoming generation, if you think about it, because that next generation of player was the one that... Uh, inherited a different cultural reality and and baseball to me is one of those romanticized sports because you can trace its development its evolution through the the challenges of adversity going on around it in in the politics and in the cultural reality around it whether it was the civil rights movement whether it was creating a union and having real legitimate representation for free agents uh, whether it was dealing with drug awareness and, and alcoholism, which was a big problem in the 80s and 90s. It doesn't get talked about, but there were a lot of players out there who literally would do lines of cocaine or, or drink, you know, a 12-pack before they go and, and, and hit a home run to entertain you. The game has always looked to the next generation to determine everything from how people perceive the sport. But the reason I might come across a little bit cynical to you, John, is because I believe that the Moneyball era and the enshrining of the analytics in their current form has really damaged the game permanently mm -hmm. for me. It's damaged the way I enjoy it organically. Um, and that's not me being, you know, again, an old fogey saying, I remember back in the 80s how great and dynamic it was. It wasn't even that great and dynamic some of the time either in the 80s. But in, the difference was there were a lot more possibilities of what could happen in a baseball game. There were more... Um, effectively marketed leaders of the game that, I mean, you had a Simpsons episode that had like 10 established major league players and you could probably list them off if you take the time because they were so memorable. Right. You remembered Ricky Henderson, you remembered Kirby Puckett or Roger Clemens or Jose Canseco. And of course, all of those players have struggled with their own, you know, uh, fallibility. And in some cases, in the case of Puckett, you know, he was my one of my favorite players and he's no longer with us. He, he found his own sad ending, even though he deserved nothing but a celebration of life uh, it, from a baseball perspective. But again, all those players seem to be attributed with some form of domestic abuse or drug use or some kind of uh, uh, controversy. The difference now with this generation is, as you mentioned, they're under a microscope. Everything they say and do will be uh, torn to shreds and bits Let's use a home example here on the home front of Vlad Guerrero Jr. Remember when he came up and showed up to spring training and all the media banded together to try to find adjectives for words like fat? Yep. Which they did yep. without actually using that word. But the truth is he came up, he showed up, he was fat, he was out of shape. He'd never lifted a barbell in his life. And it showed. It showed, didn't it? His first season was a was a disappointment. And his, sexy, his second season was a even more of a a, a concern. Um, but now you look at him and now he's clued in. It looks like over, you know, the off season, he got himself into shape. And I think he got some lessons in social media in terms of understanding what the current is out there, what the, what the uh, polarized fan base is all about, you know, which for Blue Jays fans, they'll always be polarized to a degree, but now they seem to be coalescing because why the team is winning. Hey, it's that great equalizer. The, the moment the team shows it can win more games than it loses. Suddenly people are jumping on the bandwagon. This generation of players, you know, whether it's a, a, an Acuna Jr., whether it's a Vlad Guerrero Jr., I mean, you have an opportunity, Bo Bichette, to win over so many fans by just leading by example. You know, do your best on the field. It's not going to be easy. Kavan Biggio and Danny Jansen will attest to that. It's tough to become fan favorites when you can't put up the goods on the field. But fans respect players with character with a little bit of charisma, with a little bit of self-deprecating je ne sais quoi that you look at them and say, I know why they made it to the league. You know, they're a special player. That's what I miss about the 80s and 90s. You could tell that with certain players. You know, I, I, I know that some of them had their own foibles. You know, Paul Molitor wasn't perfect. He went through a lot of trials and tribulations. Dave Winfield wasn't perfect. 
you know, Andre Dawson wasn't perfect, but by the end of their careers in totality, you respected them for what they brought to the game of baseball. That's what I hope this next generation learns from the trials and tribulations and sad sack travails of my generation's uh, players that started so strongly in the 80s and 90s. And unfortunately, over the last 15 years, I mean, I'm not just talking about drug use, John. I'm not just talking about the syntax of the game changing and making these players into one-dimensional pylons that either hit a home run or strike out. I'm talking about the way that they engage the media and their fans. That's I right. mean, I can only I can only put up with so much of Trevor Bauer's incendiary garbage and 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 questionable political views along with Kurt Schilling's lamentations. I mean, the fact that he whined like a small child for not getting into the Hall of Fame when you and I both know that he's going to get in next year, the way he's trending, the fact that he turned that into a pulpit, that's Major League Baseball's problem. Mm. It doesn't have any effective PR from its own players. Mike Trout can show up in Orangeville. Nobody will know who Mike Trout is. <laughs> I was going to bring Honestly. that up because you're, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. The guy flies so under the radar, almost perfectly in a way, because he just shows up, does his job, goes home. Have you seen his numbers? He oh. is literally having a Ruthian, Babe Ruth, epic, Barry Bonds, walk nine right. time, 19 times in a year intentionally, that kind of mystique to it. Yet, you know, nobody knows, least, nobody knows nobody who, knows he, who is. he is. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Compared to basketball and, and football and, and uh, hockey and the way they praise their elite, I, I always felt that, you know, baseball, and, and it's not their fault necessarily because some of these athletes just don't have much charisma or character. Sure. And there's only so much I can enjoy a conversation with Bryce Harper and Mike Trout before I'm probably staring at my nachos and uh, thinking, <laughs> what else can I talk about with these millionaire man-child, you know, man-children? What can I do? It's the situation they're put in. And I think that uh, Vlad Guerrero, he learned from that now. I think his father and his entourage sat down with him and said, look, you got some, you got some grief, but know, know that it was not because you were overweight. It was because you didn't play any fundamental baseball in an entire calendar year. You <laughs> look like you were trying to control the game. And as you know, right. you cannot control the game. No, ever. no. I mean, you know, having this conversation reminds me of that quote from the Russell Crowe Gladiator movie. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? And I think, you know, there's a pretty succinct point there. Uh, Ari, we could go on and on, I'm sure. And uh, I do appreciate you giving me some time talking a little bit about this Roberto Alomar situation, but more so about just the nature of how we put these athletes on pedestals and, and the lessons that we need to take away from situations like that when these allegations come to surface. And make no mistake, more allegations will come up, not just with Roberto, but with other players down the road. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to... Keep in mind that it's going to happen and we can't set ourselves up for more disappointment and catch us off guard because time and time again, it keeps happening. Well said, and that's true. And the irony, of course, is not lost that Roberto was traded for, in my opinion, the greatest Blue Jay of all time in terms of character, in terms of soulfulness and spirituality and ability, Mr. Tony Fernandez. Mm. All you have to do is look at his storied career and appreciate what he went through and how he persevered to know that this was a man who, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But this was a very, very special man who deserves to be in the hallowed halls of baseball, in the pantheon of our memories, right at the top. He is Ari Shapiro. Go check out his work online, arishapiro.ca. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome. to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Oh, yes. Uh, this is always a, a treat when I get to fill in for Shane, and I know that I get to connect with Greg Fish. Greg, you and I, we haven't spoken in a number of weeks, but I hope you have been doing all right. First question for you tonight, sir. It is Good News Tuesday. Is there anything you'd like us to uh, celebrate here with you? Oh, positive news. Uh, that's usually yeah. out of my repertoire. <laughs> Well, uh, it, let's it can be see. big and small. Yeah. Well, let's see. There's a helicopter flying on Mars. So yay humans. Like that's a pretty Woo. awesome accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I, I, Andrew Ferreira, the host of Weird Science, uh, he would also do a fist pump with you there because I think that's a huge accomplishment for our entire species. So way to go, humanity. Yeah. We, we finally did something right in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, you know, it took a few time. It took a few years and it took an entire planet um, I guess a different planet for us to say that we are did do something correctly. So at, at least we can we can give ourselves a pat on the back. Although of course all the 
the work goes to the uh, the NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, experts. But I'm just going to say it's all of humanity's victory because it kind of really is. Uh, with that in mind, Greg, taking a look at the latest article up online at worldofweirdthings.com, the headline reads, and I quote, we may be over COVID, but the COVID isn't done with us. So, sir, break us break this down for us because uh, the situation between the United States and Canada in terms of the pandemic is quite different. But in your perspective, why isn't COVID done with you? Well, the reason why COVID isn't done with us is because there are still hotspots around the world that are creating new variants that we are just hoping that the vaccines will work for, but we currently don't know for sure. So the worst thing that we could do is we could go ahead and just, you know, get vaccinated whenever, not get the second shot if we are doing a two-shot vaccine, um, just immediately lower all of the social distancing and all the opening requirements and just say, hey, you know, we're all sick and tired of it and some of us got our shots. So let's just pretend that the last couple of years never happened and they were just a bad dream and we'll just move on with our lives and just open everything, everybody's back to normal. because. We're not ready to do that. And there are places in the world where there's still a lot of outbreaks. Like, for example, the situation in India is is borderline catastrophic, and there's new mm-hmm. variants that are coming out of that. Um, situation in Turkey is not that great. Iran is very dire. Uh, Brazil is is really uh, in, in a lot of trouble. So there's definitely a lot of potential for new strains to come back. Now, the interesting thing that we need to keep in mind and, and potentially like a ray of hope here, good news Tuesday, right? Uh, is that <laughs> there is a limit to how much coronaviruses can mute, can mutate and still be infectious to humans and dangerous to humans. This is actually what happened with SARS and MERS. They, they changed and mutated enough to where they weren't really dangerous to us anymore. Um, but we were lucky because they, those were not outbreaks nearly at the scale that we have now seen with COVID. And we are not exactly sure how many of those changes can happen to this particular strain of COVID and still be infectious to, infectious to us. We can hope for the best, but we really do need to prepare. And, the, the, and we can't just say, okay, some of us got vaccinated, we're good to go. Let's, you know, let's, let's just go ahead and resume life. Um, The other, so the other issue is that we really need to consider the kind of damage that we have seen to basically kind of like our way of life Mm. over the last year and, and what it showed about, you know, our societies as a whole and our leadership as a whole. And we need to take this into account. And even if let's say, you know, the best happens. The variants are kept under control. We realize that, you know, we really kind of are in this together as humans because viruses don't really care about like borders or politics. Just because you vote a certain way or you have certain political beliefs doesn't mean that you're going to be spared from the disease uh, or your friends are going to be spared from the disease. And just because it's somewhere over there doesn't mean it can't make it over to where you are because. If it couldn't, then we wouldn't have this pandemic in the first place. But let's say we, we get everything collectively, we get our act in order, we get everything figured out, we vaccinate enough people, we achieve herd immunity, there are going to be still things that we really need to tackle after this pandemic. In terms of those things, do you think they're accomplishable in the next, let's say, decade, or does it take a fundamental change with the way we perceive society is running. Because I I think you're right. I think it has shown that there are vulnerabilities to the way uh, leadership is handled, to the way we handle socializing on a pretty everyday basis pre-COVID-19. And it's maybe taught us some incredible lessons. Now, the silver lining to all this, Greg, is that maybe throughout the pandemic, we have picked up on things that will carry with us on a more full-time basis. One of the things might just be wearing masks more commonly. It's already a very regular occurrence in parts of South Asia, East Asia. So maybe that's one thing that we could learn from the pandemic is that wearing masks more frequently is is not the worst thing to do. 
Absolutely. I mean, during flu season, you if you feel sick, you should absolutely wear a mask. If you don't feel under if you feel a little under the weather, you should absolutely wear a mask. Um, yeah, if you absolutely if you go into if you go to Asia at any point, you'll see a lot of people wearing masks. And, and actually, when I, I travel, I like to have a mask on the plane. And that saved me from a couple of really nasty colds, uh, mm. especially during busy seasons. And this was, you know, years before the pandemic. So definitely recommend that. Uh, but the other but the more fundamental things is that when it, you know, we have elections coming up in the United States and in Canada in the next few years. And what we need to do when we approach these elections is we're going to need to demand better from our leaders. So much damage has been done because instead of saying, this is a real crisis, we need to kind of band together, we need to work together as societies, as countries, as, as, a, global, um, as a global civilization. And, we, and instead, we had a lot of fragmented responses that were in no small part driven by populist leaders who decided that it's not the it's the virus is not the problem. The problem is that people would look at them and say, "Well, the virus happened on your watch, therefore, it's a personal failing of yours that we have a virus." And they treated it this way instead of, you know, this is this is a crisis that I have to solve. They treated it as this is an insult to me, and these people better stop dying and getting sick and making me look bad. And mm. I know I don't want to actually help anything or help anyone. I just want this to go away. And this and this never works. We have, uh, especially in the English speaking West, we have a huge problem with people in the media who have never met a problem that they can't scream partisan slogans at hmm. and make it go away. And now that they that they have done that, now that they have come up with a problem that you can't just you know yell a slogan at, they decided they're just going to keep shouting slogans. And in doing so, they have undermined um, a lot of their a, a lot of potentially positive responses. They prolonged the pandemic. They're increasing vaccine hesitancy, which means there's more room for variants and there's more room for um, more for more room for more restrictions and for the pandemic to last even longer. And we are not basically going to them and saying, you're done. We're not listening to you. You are garbage. We don't want to deal with you. You basically have failed as human beings and we are completely, we're, we're done with you because mm. they will whine about cancel culture. And, and it really comes down to they are much more interested in keeping us angry at each other and afraid of something. So we either tune in or give them money to tell us what else we need to be afraid of and who else to hate. And that is the only thing that they know how to do. And unfortunately, we have discovered that a lot of our friends and neighbors and, and people who we may have had respect for very much go along with that. And they're perfectly happy to, you know, not care that we might that they might do something that will get us sick or they might endanger their lives. And now we'll have to go into the back into the office and talk to, you know, Jim or Susie who posted, you know, ridiculous screeds about how COVID is a hoax and you know, mm. they, they saw it on some YouTube video that we don't need to wear masks and masks make you sicker. And if you die from COVID, then you were weak anyway. And we now have to like socialize with these people who we know hold these very monstrous antisocial beliefs and pretend that that hasn't really happened to keep cohesion in the office. I don't think that's really going to be realistic. You're going to have all these, you're going to have these breakdowns. And so over the next decade, hopefully, we're going to we're going to need to start holding our leaders to account. We're going to need to start holding our media figures to account. We're going to need to hold our friends and neighbors to account and say there are consequences for acting like you are not part of a society, like the rules of society don't apply to you, and you just get to hate everyone and be a loudmouth and undermine others and undermine efforts to you know get over a crisis. Uh, because you think you're the protagonist of the universe. Like we, we these are huge things that we need to address. Because what if the next pandemic is worse? 
This is not going to be the last. This is not. This is far from the first pandemic. This is not going to be the last. As we are trying to get over this pandemic, we need to be thinking what's going to happen next time. Is how how bad could next time be, and how do we actually weather next time without the disruptions that we saw, without the social upheaval that we saw, without people actively undermining our response to this pandemic at every turn. These are the, it, these are scary things, and I don't think they're they're getting a lot of they're not getting a lot of discussion. And this is why there's when you ask people uh, in in the United States and Canada how they feel about kind of returning back to normal after their vaccinations, half of them will say not great. I feel I still mm. feel pretty anxious. I still feel like you know things are not that great, and it's very tempting to dismiss them. Oh, you know you're just addicted to the crisis now, but they're not. They have a very legitimate point, and it needs to be heard. I wonder how much of this is drawn from the fact that we're so reliant on technology and specifically social media because there hey, look there's there's some advantages to social media as we know like in in times of uh, an emergency um like for and this is a terrible example but it's sorry it's the one that comes to mind but in the event of a mass shooting i have seen social media apps platforms offering those within the vicinity of that shooting to be able to check in to let their friends and family on social media know that hey i'm safe i managed to get out and i think that's a really invaluable tool just to let people in your life know you're okay but we also know that for every advantage that social media comes with it's kind of got its own level of twists and distortions to make it a very ugly tool. To your point about spreading conspiracy theories or undermining with with posts and opinions about whether or not the the pandemic is real and et cetera, et cetera, all of that is is, uh, exacerbated by the fact that social media has no filter. And and maybe there's got to be a real close examination to the way we are able to use some of these things. It's not really the filter that's the problem it's the fact that outrage sells on the web and the people who run social media sites care about monetizing views and because outrage mm. sells they decided okay we'll sell outrage we don't care it doesn't it really doesn't matter to us as long as people are engaged as long as they show the ads we do not care and you're right we have really messed up social media. And I say that as a, as a techie, I say that as someone who, you know, programs computers for a living, we have, in a lot of ways, we have created technology and unleashed on the world without thinking how it's going to be used. We've rushed to send it out. And the effect has really been like giving middle schoolers nuclear weapons. We've given mm. people technology and capabilities for which we were not prepared without any rules. It's that quote that comes to mind. Uh, We were worrying so much about whether or not we could, we didn't stop to think about whether or not we should in terms of how quickly technology has come so far. And, And you're right. We probably had, for example, the creation of the internet. Nobody could have thought at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, that it would have grown to what it is now. The fact that I'm doing a radio show from my living room, thanks to the power of the internet, is kind of proof to that. Well, oddly enough, they did think that it was going to be this big. They did think that Mm. it was going to change the world. But consider the fact that the vast majority of the foundations of the internet and kind of the unwritten rules on which the internet has been founded uh, were created by genteel academics who were used to debating with each other. And they kind of assumed that, well, you know, we can, yes, we can just ban the rare troublemaker, but the vast majority of people are just going to debate and they're going to come to some sort of a conclusion and we're going to exchange facts and we're going to all get informed and learn more about each other because that's what we do, right? Hmm. Well, that's not how the real world ended up working out they have not they they were not really anticipating the amount of bad faith and abuse that would come and really again it's hard to blame the people who've kind of created the web as we know it because they just created the technology and they had the best intentions but when it became but when it became monetized the companies that saw all these problems didn't say well hold on we probably need to dial back and figure out how to solve these problems they said well if we're making money we don't care and that and that it was really what what it comes down to as long as people make money 
from outrage, as long as people make money from dividing us, as long as people make money from trying to bring out the worst in us and make it make us feel good for acting bad and doing the easy thing instead of the right thing, and then ask to send the money so they can do it again and get us in that feedback loop of validation and paying for this license to be selfish assholes sometimes. We're going to ha- we're going to be in a lot of trouble and it's not just going to be from a pandemic standpoint it's going to be from an education standpoint it's going to be from it's going to be from a lot of different things and I think the reason why we should really talk about it now is because a crisis like covid is a crisis that requires us to understand the basic uh basic immunology it requires us to understand basic biology it involves us as a society being educated about certain things and not you know, going, you know, Googling the first thing we agree with and say, oh, by the way, I know better than the doctors. I know better than public health officials. And I have questions. And even though they've been answered a thousand times, I'm going to pretend that they haven't. And then I don't trust them anyway. Like that, that has to stop. We can't do that. That's not how science works. That's not how the world works. That's not how a healthy society works. Every society that has tried this in the past has been destroyed. In one way or another, Fair. they have they, they have collapsed. Greg, we we're just up against the clock, so we got it like a, just a couple minutes here. But is there is there a society? Is there a nation out there right now that is actually doing a pretty? I don't know if anyone could be capable of doing a perfect job throughout this pandemic, but maybe an example that we should be looking at more closely and saying this is how it's supposed to be done. I would say. New Zealand is a great example of how to deal with the pandemic. Yes, they have the advantage of being an island, but they took it seriously. They took it together as a community. Um, Japan has 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 really done um, its best. Uh, no one no one in this case is perfect, but countries that mm-hmm. emphasize working together as a team, working together as a society, have done much better and have and have re- seen far fewer casualties and far fewer side effects and in terms of fighting disinformation finland has actually been a huge bright spot in that uh, because they emphasize teaching critical thinking and media literacy and tech literacy and these are things that we need to be emphasizing right now uh, especially in the uk canada united states and australia imagine that a system that benefits when you start putting people over profits who would have thought uh, but it is kind of a refreshing mental exercise just to see and look across the pond and say, hmm, well, these countries are certainly doing a better job. What lessons well, if can you we take learn? Care, if you take care of people, they'll generate the profit. Good point. Yeah, that's a they're very the, good point. We'll... They're the goose that lays the golden egg. And if you mistreat them and if you forget about them and if you neglect them and if you keep on fighting with each other, you're just killing that goose. Mm. And we want those golden eggs. Uh, Greg, appreciate you joining us as always. We look forward to another edition of World of Weird Things. And of course, all the latest that Greg is talking about online at worldofweirdthings.com. Appreciate you, sir. And uh, we will chat soon, I'm sure. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.